Okay. Starting soon, TM. I should have caught that. <laughs> See, this is why there's an advantage with, with doing scene transitions. You can really check things out. And hotkeys can let you mute certain items and hide certain things. Stuff like that. Um, yeah, so the countdown timer works well. I'm, I like that. I wonder if we should actually start the the pre-stream much earlier on our end. Like we would do our pre-check a half an hour before show start and then just uh, begin the stream with a video or music or whatever the heck and like walk away until we're ready to actually sit down and stuff. So the stream would have been running for a good 15 plus minutes. Gives people enough time to... Um, Twitch will remind people when a show goes live and... It gives people a time to kind of settle in, just like the way breaks work, even if it's only 10 minutes. Um, but that does mean, like, maybe waking up at noon. <laughs> Something like that. Okay, so... Um, why? why? I have a to-do note that says, a playlist out of our shoes. I have no idea what I meant. <laughs> Uh, I think it shows and you just went one key over. Oh, thank you very much. You're useful. Yes. Okay. So that is correct. Um, so because we have two separate uh, kinds of upload for YouTube, it will be valuable for people that want to binge if you were to maintain a playlist of all the shows. I mean, personally, I would do the oldest one first. But maybe you should do two. Uh, is a playlist sortable by the user, or is it just us? I, I wonder. I mean, can I actually find a YouTube? You should be the one with answers like this. Mm, Let's check out. Yeah, sort by popular or date added, oldest or newest. Yeah, but I want the choice of the user, not of the creator. Of the you do have it through the choice of the user. Really? Let me see. What the hell is that? Ah, why is YouTube doing that? Why would I hate autoplay? You're autoplaying um, off the front page. No, there is no way for a user to sort things. Yes, there is. Oh. Okay, try it in a private window then. Because I'm looking at a playlist, and I can't... Oh, a playlist. No. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like you need to make two playlists. One... And and they can be... Once you set them up, they'll be pretty automated. So um, one... Actually, both of them could be automated, depending on how you set things up, but you shouldn't do that. So one would be sorted ascending, the other descending. And you can set it so that whenever you add a new item, a new entry into the playlist, it'll automatically add it to the top or the bottom. Oh, okay. And that way, somebody who wants to just visit the most recent one, they have an easy way to do that without dealing with clips, which they might not want to. I mean, presenting things well in playlists is actually pretty important. I have been told by people that um, playlists are important enough because they're another type of possible recommendation and that search terms and stuff like that might pick up because because doing a generic search on youtube there are three categories of things there's channels channel names 
there's videos, titles, maybe even searching through descriptions and stuff. And then there's playlists. And unless a person specifically shapes their search request, they will get playlists. So it's valuable to actually have playlists as one of the category of things that uh, is maintained on the channel. That way, uh, it's additional opportunity for discovery. So add that to your to-do list, um, two playlists. Um, so, so that's the, uh, the earlier launch thing. And I'll make a note on my end to figure it out. Do you want me to, I mean, I'm, I kind of want to make it a project of my own to make like a, a cat slideshow of images or of like videos and stuff. Cause I actually haunt an image board and it's getting far too, cause everything's American, right? And the Americans are going insane. And so I, it's very challenging to wade through the garbage to get to the gold. Um, and so I've been keeping a collection of like cat related stuff. Cause I like cats. I grew up with cats, so I like cats and, uh, at all kinds of like funny memes, nothing too, nothing too offensive. Although there's some, some that are like, I mean, you can't fault a kitten for climbing up on a woman <laughs> to, to find a comfortable spot to sit. Cause I mean, of course it makes perfect sense. This, it's the same reason larger cats like laps is smaller cats like um like torsos let's say wait how do we um, get to wait how did we get to this <laughs> we got to this because i'm thinking of um creating content like that uh, maybe shaped at specific lengths of time so that we can have those available for interesting stuff for breaks or for the pre-show stuff so not necessarily just music, but kind of like moving pictures. It's especially interesting at the beginning of a show uh, as kind of the, the reward for people that happen to come in early. And the fact that it's moving stuff might attract random people that don't know about us at all. That They might see it as an active entry in the list of Twitch and... They might visit it. It'll say coming soon, but it, and normally a person would just click away. But if there's content there, they might be like, hey, this is... No, I haven't seen this particular wacky cat smelling a sock going all twitchy. Um, and they'll sit and they'll wait for the podcast. Of course, the trick is having the beginning of a podcast actually be interesting right away so the person will actually stay for more than a couple of minutes. And that's, that's one of the, you know, the, the tragic realities of making any kind of content is as soon is there's it isn't necessarily because I've made this argument for video games. It isn't necessarily true that you have direct competitors for anything in that you're both using this, the same skill set. You're both presenting on the same platform Th that would naturally make competitors out of participants but the fact that there is a limited amount of uh, interest or just time for listeners you're automatically in the category of uh, competing for the time of every every listener of on that platform not just your particular niche 
so part of the um, part of the way to part of the way to be interesting is to actually be as niche as possible, and then the people that you do attract end up being because you end up being unique. So you have you have more of a reason for people to to come because they can't get that kind of content someplace else, and that's a way of 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 not being common. Um, and so you don't, you, you end up not competing for anything. If you're so niche, of course, if you're so niche, nobody will care about you. The bulk of people will care about you. And it's really hard to get noticed if you're, cause you're not going to get passed around recommended, recommended that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's some marketing stuff involved, but again, okay. So it's me. So it involves me taking a while to wind up. And I guess having topics to talk about is my problem, my responsibility. Okay, so I do have a couple of notes that I want to talk about. Um, and one really challenging thing that maybe maybe I should start on it right now so that I have as much time as possible to actually figure it out. And maybe we'll come back to it after a break or after the break after. Um, and it's a thought that's been bouncing around in my head. And like a lot of thoughts, so I'm, I'm rather hyper introverted. I'm, I'm really, really in my head and I'm really thinking. And it, it's really, um, I mean, it's really valuable for me to find ways of shaping my thinking because there is value to be had in a wandering mind. You just, you need to find a way to lasso it and herd it somewhere somewhere useful and there are different kinds of people and it turns out that i'm a, a particularly uh, let's say that my avenue for hurting my thoughts is with writing and yet so i've been working so writing is something that i can do easily enough that it's actually kind of demotive it's kind of boring because it's hard to explain how something can be easy, making it boring, making you not doing it. <laughs> so it's like the better you are at something, the less of it you actually do. Whereas people that are that are common, that are average, that are mediocre, will accomplish more because they actually try. It's a weird, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Um but for for me, writing is one of the tools of slowing things down and actually making things make sense. And the other that I'm experimenting with, like this podcast is a big experiment on it, is speaking. And speaking is, is all manner of challenging because like I have these pregnant pauses all the time because it's hard. It's sometimes I need additional time. Uh, what just happened? to pick the right kind of language. You'll notice politicians will do. Uh, hold on. Uh, we experienced a blip for some reason. One of the reasons writing is, is important is because it's not real time. And you can, you can put, you can, you can pause the world when you're writing and you can't pause the world when you're speaking. So when you're writing, you can actually, it isn't so much that you can go back and edit what you wrote earlier, but you can actually slow down 
So for example, my, my world building stuff, when I write, um, I write pen and paper one shot with no editing. Now there's some problems with getting tenses correctly. So I will go back and I might add a plural or something weird like that. And sometimes I'm just going so fast that I will, I will get word order wrong. It's pretty rare, but it happens and it's just annoying. So I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll cross a word out or something like that. So, um, it is possible to value writing without thinking in terms of editing. And that's one of the problems that a lot of writers like me have uh, with, with writing is you constantly struggle with, with both the fresh content. So fresh words and always being lured back to editing what happened before. And so there's, there's a way of thinking and a way of, of processing ideas in the written form that's very different from the spoken form, which is something I'm, I'm working on a little bit better. So there's kind of pregnant pauses because I write like that. So I'm, I'm speaking written English, which is a concept that not many people are going to understand for a while. Um, so, so, so this is kind of practice true. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to talk through an idea and it's a really complicated idea. So there's, there's having stuff in your head and some people think in symbols, which is the weirdest concept. And some people think in language. And, um, so you might have the participant in your head that you're speaking with, um, people that are public speakers might do this instinctively. So they have an audience in their head that they're shaping speeches for. Um, this is something that maybe, uh, you get the, the old, it's a it's a technique to stand in the bathroom and practice in front of a mirror because it's it's a person it is more real as a person even though it's your own reflection it's as a way of practicing so there's there's thinking in a certain in in sets of ways and those translate quite well to speaking and there's thinking and then trying to commit it to paper some people end up kind of doing it wrote because they've really thought it through. Um, and some people explore in different ways. I can talk about methods of writing. It's basically types of human, uh, types of writer that, that act in certain ways, but I want to talk about speaking. And sometimes when you're speaking, um, although it has been in your head and although maybe you have an invisible audience in your head, so like I might summon up the five-year-old version of, of an, a fabricated person in my head and explain an idea to that five-year-old um, as a way of simplifying the language well enough. Because if you can't explain something to somebody else, what value does it have? Unless you're the one doing it. If you're the one doing it, who cares if other people understand? But if you want to propagate an idea out through other people, and have actions in the world be 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 um, enacted eventually through how you communicate. If you ever want to do that, um, you have to know how to explain something really well. Not just well enough. You you can't just think it through and and know it, get it as fact with with all the all the evidence or all the all the technique, etc. You have to be able to convey it and you have to be able to kind of like 
So there's there's mastery in uh, you know a master and a student where you would have mastery that would convey an idea to a person to a listener or a reader. And then there's something like grand mastery, which is where you would have enough of a grasp of an idea and enough skill for communication that you can actually turn somebody else into, so to speak, a master of the ideas so that they are then able, they understand well enough and they have the skills to, to continue conveying the ideas. This is uh, one of the reasons why like there are so few philosophers in life that you can actually learn, essentially learn all their names. You can go to, I've got problems with philosophy being taught in, unfortunately it's university and it actually should be, it should be like high level grade school. So this is like, I can imagine philosophy starting gently at 12 years old. I don't think that would be a big, big problem because most children are, or have a, a brain that's been well formed. It's just kind of empty um, between nine and 12. And so starting around 12, it's, uh, it might be a little tough for people that got there late, but it's, but you just have really gentle philosophies and it should be all the way up through high school. And I'm not, I know these terms are different in different places on earth, but you can think of from 12 year old to from 12 years old to some sort of post-secondary and through post-secondary um philosophy is taught as the history of philosophy and it's walked through in in in, uh, in historical order and with all the philosophies more or less intact which is just the the biggest waste of time ever because there are a whole lot of philosophies that that suck that were defeated, whose ideas are bad, and they 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 can be taught and dismissed. But you may as well uh, summarize a lot of those ideas and then then just break them and replace them with the the best version of the stuff we have now. Um, and but I but I wanted to talk about the actual authors of the philosophies. There are so few of them. Um, and so, because number one, they're all thinkers, which, which isn't all of us, certainly isn't all of us all the time. And certainly isn't all of us all the time with a kind of, uh, a strange twist that, that philo the, the thinking in philosophy is really, really rare because of that. And that kind of thinker is additionally a, a good enough communicator and a good enough writer that they don't just write well, they write so well that the next person that reads can also explain it to somebody else. So that, that, that those many different components, those many layers to that build a philosophy is so rare that you could actually learn the few dozen most important names in what do I say in Western canon? Cause that's, that's generally how I think. There's a lot more out there once you start looking at other languages, other cultures, and how they have, let's say, historically approached the problems of existence or of thinking or whatnot. But often those will get into some serious religiosity, which 
will it's immediately skewed towards the metaphysical essentially so problems of a human's position in the universe that's that's really important for for something like hinduism which has a lot of philosophies cooked into it but there's a lot of like the western world has had such a tradition of atheistic thinking it even and especially because of its religious influences so some of our best philosophers ended up are come came, they directly came from highly religious christian roots and because there are certain allowances within there to think um even to question itself um that's a strange story anyhow um thinking about so i've got the problem of an idea in my head and so i haven't really spoken about it before so i'm going to ramble through it possibly minion can help with this because it has to do with um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna spoil it okay so it goes something like this uh, do you believe in santa claus it's a strange question to ask an, an adult, something like that. An adult, a question like, do you believe in Santa Claus? It's not like it's offensive. It's, it's a little confusing. It's almost like you're, you're lining somebody up to be conversationally tricked. Uh, like it, it's such a, it's so odd. And, and if, and it's not just that it's a weird question. It's a person there is not even quite the sense that there are, are like house Santa Claus worshippers that have to say secret because there's going to be some um, consequence of their coming out and admitting that they still believe in Santa Claus. It, it's just not a thing. It would be for somebody to learn that another person believes in Santa Claus as an adult, it would just be confusing it, it like maybe even really interesting because it's just not a thing it's not a thing and it's okay to not be a thing but i could ask a lot of people did you used to believe in santa claus like when you were a child and and in, in the exact same way a lot of people could just shrug and say yes yeah i used to believe in santa claus i did and it's strange. There was there was a transition between being a child and being an adult. And for a lot of people with the Santa Claus problem, it has to do it it's it might not have been a decision cuz children kind of can't make decisions, not like adults can. Um so there was a kind of fading or an obsolescence of that that spirit right? So the holiday spirit may have outlasted the Santa Claus thing. And maybe for people who are parents, or especially grandparents, certain components of it come back. You know, maybe that's why there's a propagation of that holiday, that holiday spirit, and even the idea of, you know, the gift giving, jolly, bearded man, that kind of stuff. Maybe that is because parents or even just people in general will vicariously re-experience a kind of childhood innocence through 
through the retelling of that. Now, what's interesting is um, this, this spirit is the... Most children grow up into adults and they never realize that the Christmas thing is a lie. It was a lie that was told. It wasn't just that, that Santa Claus is the largest betrayal possible that a human can ever commit because it's a child who is the most innocent, trusting person being betrayed by the people that they love the most and who love them back. And it's not even justified with it's for your own good, which is a strange thing to do. It's not some argument that they, they, that they continue this mythology. It's not even mythology. This, I'll, I'll just call it a lie that they propagate this, that they continue this, that they, they somehow instill this. They're not doing it so as to uh, help raise a better person necessarily. It's kind of a thing that's kind of around. And it's very strange because not only do children grow up into adults who aren't bitter about that, and I'm not saying they should be, but they grow into adults that, that um, will continue that, that history of it. And it's not, I'm not making some comparison to children who are abused grow up into parents who abuse their children and so forth, which is a ter terrible thing. And I was using really strong words like lying and betrayal. And technically those do apply, technically. But we don't think of it like that. We don't think of it like a problem. Um, we don't even think of it like a... Uh, an improvement to the to what will become an adult. We do think of it in terms of a child's happiness, and we don't even think about it in terms of we're we're tricking the child into being happier. It's we we um, follow these actions, and then children are happy, and maybe adults are happy, and maybe this brings out the best in us, and, and all this kind of stuff, and. And it's, it's strange, and I'm not really revealing a whole lot by talking about it, but I am using pretty harsh words. And what's interesting is there is a lesson to be had there that I don't think hardly any adult really grasps. And this is why it's very difficult for me to think about this topic and really difficult for me to, to talk about it. Um, so I'll keep trying to reason through it. And it goes something like this. When you're in school, when you were in school, perhaps, um, you had the exact same kind of innocent trust in your teachers that you did as a child in your parents. And there continues to be a lie. And the lie is that your trust isn't misplaced, that there is a measure of expertise that surrounds adulthood somehow uh, all people that are older than you when you were a child are imbued with something. And as a child, uh, this, is, this is true for your parents. And as you grow up, that, that gets imprinted uh, 
out from parents out into into people in positions of authority for things like education. But what's weird is there's actually no there there's no reason to believe that a teacher wouldn't also be a liar or a betrayer in the exact same sense as a parent was for Santa Claus. Now, the situation is quite different because, you know, yada, yada, yada. Okay. So Christmas spirit, happiness, it's a chat. There's no harm done in et cetera, et cetera. And you might think, okay, well, but a teacher doesn't love the children. Maybe they love their job. I don't think that's a good substitute. And, but the child is, is differently innocent. So the situation is different. And you might also think, well, um, it's a person's job and, and there are consequences for a teacher being a bad teacher for, for also performing some kind of sleight of hand similar to the, the Santa Claus thing. And you might also think, well, you know, some measure of inadequacy is inevitable and we're, we're doing the best we can. Well, just like the holiday spirit, we do the best we can. So, and you might think, well, there are boards of education, groups of people who collaborate on making the best out of what they can and helping education be effective and et cetera, et cetera. But, but there's no, uh, but the exact same spirit of not of, of trust being betrayed, um, still persists. That problem still persists. It's mutated a little bit, but there's no reason for a youth in school to trust. Like, why would there be any trust that's greater or equal to their parents as a child? They're trusting in the education grant well, forced on them in the same way that they trusted in the culture of the holiday spirit and in the idea of a Santa Claus. And I suppose I grew up a rather um, bitter child, but I think a lot of people at, at those early ages really deeply understood that, that school is a prison. And that it's this thing, it's not well understood by somebody that's in it. It's not made optional. Uh, there's, there's, I mean, it's confusing and it's difficult and it just, it seems like it's there as a daycare, but for people, for, for youths that are too old for playpens, it's just this, it's a, it's a prison. It's a prison. And I thought about it like that when I was young. And it isn't because I was bitter about school. I mean, I understood all of these things while participating, while, while having a regular, well-adjusted childhood. It's not like I went to one of these tough schools in a terrible neighborhood or anything like that. I, I lived a, I think most youths, I think most adults think they had a terrible childhood. I think that's just a thing. I think that's why four-year-olds have tantrums. And I think that's why a lot of children are more demanding than they ought to be is because they the world has revolved around them 
And I think that that somehow sticks to us. And we all feel like our childhood could be better. And maybe that's for the best because that really does empower a, a parent to do better for their offspring. And I think that's that's a thing. I think that's a thing. But it's true that some people have had it worse, objectively worse than others. And you could pick any number of of situations and you will probably find somebody who's had it worse than you for any aspect of your youth. But so it, it's not like I had some kind of bitterness to education that was caused from some torturous thing. It wasn't some was, I mean, yeah. So it, for me, it was, it was pretty average. I mean, I've heard stories of other people and I know I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm not, I don't have a dark educational past, but this idea has been in my head from a very, very young age. So when looking at education, what mechanics are there that suggest that the education itself isn't corrupt in some way? Uh, I don't think there is much of any. There's just this, this assumption that, oh, well, I mean, it's really important. Therefore, it must have been audited by other people that somehow know what they're doing. But the thing is, there seems to be really not a whole lot in life that's like that. I mean, education might be one of the single most important concepts for civilization. But we're kind of winging it. I don't, I've never seen it in, actually, I can talk about the, the education system in Canada, um, which it was corrupted in, I think it was 1974 or something like that, where it was reworked under the assumption that certain students needed to have things balanced out in their favor because they were being excluded. You'll hear a lot of that these days, especially tainting education. Turned out to not be true even then, and it just made everything worse. So it, it unbalanced everything in the wrong direction. It made education terrible. And, and I mean, it, it's worse now, but as, as I was riding through that wave, um, I could tell that there were things that were, that were off about education. It's like just calling it suboptimal. It's not like it was uh, abusive or anything like that. Cause I, I was right at the leading edge. I got to experience enough of the remnants of the, the solid quality of education before things just started getting dismantled and rewritten. So, you know, I got the, the nice dangerous playgrounds before they got disassembled and made shorter and given sand instead of wood chips or whatever, whatever other weird stuff happened. Uh, I've seen trees taken down and hills flattened and stuff like that, that, I mean, they finally took apart the terrible rickety wooden fence that it wasn't serving a purpose. That was, it was like, like small sized logs and they were kind of rotten out and there was a hornet's nest in one of them. And so hornets would be flying around and, and like that, that would never happen now. But back then nobody cared. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a, you just let the kids out in this unfenced area to go and play unattended because the world, it was a different world back then. So 
so things were were weird and things cemented into this this terrible awkward thing this semi ineffective educational system um but i still experienced the the less padded less safe version of things so i i do have a weird perspective i suppose maybe compared to somebody who's younger than me and certainly it is going to be different in different places on earth right different countries and different states or provinces or what have you inside of each of those countries with different school districts they're all going to be different um, but i there is a common thread that i think uh, is in the idea of trust so as a youth why if your parents could quote unquote betray why wouldn't a teacher do it like why as you grow up into an adult would you have the same kind of innocent trust to anything i mean it's one thing to to learn to know a person and to maybe love them and betrayal becomes a real world a real word that does apply to real things as an adult it's a very adult concept but it was it that concept was even more fiercely applicable to you being the innocent version of you because the for you to have also been lied to in any effect back in your youth when you were more innocent that's that's an even more significant and more amplified kind of betrayal but i do want to want to talk about the santa claus problem so the santa claus problem is is a lie either just given not necessarily given for your own good it's just, just there and the fact that you trust without having any notion of verifying and this goes out through education into your adult life with everything so the facts that you are given sometimes they're unsolicited facts and there's no concept within you that suggests that maybe you're being lied to i mean act the actual big l properly lied to on purpose in order to manipulate you properly lying to you if for example you are consuming the news there's nothing in it that that there's no part of you that has the wherewithal to wonder if you're being lied to in exactly the same way that you are you are as innocent now with respect to some current event some new thing that you're that you're any less innocent now as before uh, that somehow just because you have the extra number of years on you that you are less vulnerable to being betrayed by something and again your the possibility of being betrayed isn't isn't even just from somebody who loves you you've already been betrayed if you used to believe in santa claus you were betrayed and now why would you trust other people more why would you think that you couldn't be betrayed when you already have in the most vicious way possible why would you trust some some aspect of information out there 
as being somehow uh, less able to to betray you while you would think okay well lots of people are are learning about that particular thing and if there's lots of people then among lots of people there would be what voices of complaint you might think well there are laws in place or there are there are bodies of experts in place well what makes you think again at no point does any of that suggest that there is any more trustworthiness than your parents at no point is there a guarantee of a lack of being lied to or being betrayed you have no bulwark being created just by being a member of a group of people all receiving the same kind of information and you might think okay well i would go to multiple competing sources of information and the fact that they're in competition would uh, would push them toward i mean the the source that is the most honest would win but that's not actually the way life works because you have no reason to believe that all sources of information aren't colluding to for for whatever reason not necessarily to lie but for for money for more effective communication so for example the the fear porn that the media loves especially the, in the united states but all media in general wants attention because that's the that is their reason that is the reason for existence that is their advertising that is their whatnot and so they all want to get your attention the fact that they all collude in that desire means that all things that they say will in some way be similarly corrupted to gain attention so you are in some sense being manipulated and that's kind of a problem because in the in a more nefarious sense you're being betrayed if you trust in some childlike way if you have an innocence towards accepting that you would not be by the nature of the communication that you would not be betrayed if you are so innocent that you maintain that then you are liable to be woefully manipulated and the the problem is um that there is no there is no competition for a lot of stuff not properly and there are no paths for you to become less innocent so you don't know how to necessarily judge a new let's call it because it is education it, receiving information from the outside world right is still a kind of education there's there's no mechanism for you to somehow gain expertise yourself to, to not trust anything and to gain expertise on everything to cut out that potential for betrayal there's always going to be holes in your defenses let's say so if you if you learn to not trust a particular newspaper for example or you learn to not trust a certain narrative of a certain event because you have a certain kind of expertise that that's good on you but you can't do that for all things 
So in a sense, there needs to be a kind of, of skepticism toward that entire means of communication of all things that come to you is to wonder if and worry that everything you're being told, everything is unloving in some sense. And I don't know that many adults could live a life like that because it is there because there is a there is a dichotomy of human where some humans are uh, some humans are averse to having uh, an empty mind to being to having questions they want answers and so they will they they may per, themselves pursue them aggressively or they may accept them from others but they want that they want a a kind of calm of questioning they want to obsolete all the questions and there's another kind of person who is the is something like the opposite of that where they are egged on by not having almost like you know there are people who are adrenaline junkies they they're maybe they're physical people they go out adventuring they go do exciting things or maybe they gamble or maybe they do a lot of a lot of things that may well be embarrassing for other people so they do public speaking or they do so there's a kind of 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 person that is uh, is is somehow motivated by having the questions and so they they are not satisfied ever so they can't find that calm that 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 peace there is no concept of obsoleting the questions so there is almost like there is a kind of person who um would rather not see well let's say let's say there's not even a choice at it let's say there's there's one sort of person who wouldn't think to aggressively resist all information the sense of of information and that there is another kind of person who would naturally evolve into kind of their normal state would be to question absolutely everything so there is one kind of let's say consumer of information that will get answers and will accept answers and you might think that this is an innocent person but maybe they gain their expertise and they gain their answers through their expertise there's another kind of person who's who will get all this information and it will just be information it will not settle anything they will always be they will always be kind of uh prickly and if they gain expertise they gain expertise as a way of undermining the information they're given not to settle the questions but to undermine <laughs> but to undermine everything so that's kind of my my santa claus thing and i i will address it i will i will address it now and i know that there is going to be a certain class of person who thought this right away because santa claus is directly mapped over to jesus christ there's a direct mapping to religion in what i just said and i know that that mapping is there and i don't i don't need to make it i don't want to make it because again there are two kinds of people for information and as it turns out 
there's two kinds of people. I mean this in a more biological sense, not in a, in a you're raised a certain way. I mean, there is just two kinds of people. One who will find, who will find and know and have faith. And the other kind of person who can't. It's not because they don't want to. It's they literally are lacking and can't. They can't have a settled heart, let's say. So from the religious perspective, these are not people who can be swayed. You might be able to trick them or something like that, but sooner or later, they'll have a kind of discontent. That discontentedness is kind of what, what brought forth a lot of philosophies from like literal ministers and such through Christianity, started a lot of the kind of thinking that we have today. So there is a kind of person who, and they may actually still be religious, but they struggle with it, or they have to, they have to justify it, or they have to separate. They have got like an academic world, and they have a religious world, and they're separate. Um, and but there is a kind of antagonism to some people, and to other people there is a kind of calm and comfort. And I don't think the two quite understand one another. So I do want to end with that. This entire Santa Claus and education and media thing wasn't a uh, wasn't taking a stab at the problem of a religion. I break that problem down biologically. So we're coming up on a break. So we're going to take ten minutes, and I'll be back on something a little less heavy. Okay, I have to fix what? this afterwards. You're starting soon, TM thing. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, um, I do also notice that the um, the timer goes back to twenty four hours. So after it expires, there was something I was wondering about. It keeps wrapping to twenty four hours. So that's that's kind of embarrassing. That you missed that spot. It's all your coder. fault. You're the one managing it. It's all your fault. I don't do codes. I didn't actually do the programming. I just found a person that did. So you didn't bother just reading it and then thinking, making yeah. the improvements that... Okay. Actually, I do know enough to make the improvements to make it not do that. Although I doubt. Mm. I just make a little check mark or something like that. You check a box and it would... It would only run through it once. Not sure how I'd pull that off though. Usually when you're faced with a, a, a programmatic problem like that, you can conceive of it in your head kind of, but when you're actually trying to do it, you end up running into these weird limitations. Like I'd have to learn the nuances of OBS. So this is, so guys, we're talking about the countdown timer. What it is, is it's a script in a programming language called Lua. And it's in OBS wait, Studio. Wait a second, I don't even think you... You just pull that script and then... You already know that script works in OBS. Just modify it a bit. Okay, so this is a, exactly what I'm talking about. So... Um, but then you would have to know how the scripting works in OBS Studio because it isn't Lua. What it is, is it's, it is the Lua programming language, but there are certain gateways between it and OBS Studio. For example, 
OBS Studio has a configuration screen for the script. So your script would have to know how to provide that configuration information. And it, there may not be um, communication back from OBS Studio into your script in the sense that the script may not be able to figure out if it's wrapped. So what, what I would probably do is I would implement an, it was, I would like cut and paste one of the features to have another dropdown. So there's a dropdown box for the type of, of countdown feature you want. I'd copy paste one and make a new one. And that new one would, would act exactly like the old one. So it's a countdown timer to a specific time in the day, 24 hour clock. And we'll have it. So if the timer is greater than like 23 hours, 30 minutes or whatever the heck, um, it would just, dis it would display nothing. I would probably just, modify that. Wouldn't you just make it so it's within the nearest like hour? Yeah, sure. It wouldn't matter. Right. So I, I'd have, I'd have it so that it can't go, it, it can't be a large number. So something like that. So, and so it would, yeah, I could probably do that. Uh, do I want to? Like, uh, okay, maybe I will. And I'll I'll make it like over, yeah. So if the number is more than twenty three hours, then I do that, and that would be thorough enough. That would still let people use a, a twenty three hour clock if they want to stream. Like I'll be back tomorrow ish, and they can have a countdown timer live streaming, which is just a terrible idea. And uh, yeah, okay. So I mean, I think I've got it running. So I have a, my own copy of OBS Studio, and I technically could do my own streaming. I've, I've got the setup all working. I had been doing it before, and so I've got the, the countdown timer working. So I've got what it takes to actually. I've got the editing environment and the testing environment to be able to try that myself. So I made a note and I can do that later. Not a big deal. So um, I did mention the two playlists before. Um, are you still working on additional playlists for music? Not right now. I zoned out yesterday. Okay, no big deal. It can, it can happen another time. Tomorrow or the day after, maybe, right? So. Oh man, I have to check what day of the week it is. Damn, lockdown. Okay, so, so yeah, I mean, it can be done Tuesday. I mean, explored. It doesn't have to be completed ever. It's it it's the twenty percent time that improves from where we're at, which is functional, to increment improvements, incremental improvements. So the eighty percent time, eighty percent of the time is like the maintenance of what already exists, which really might take a lot of effort. And it's, uh, and it's nudging out into planned things. So, for example, that that multicasting podcasting streaming that I had given you a link to, that's probably something you need to more aggressively pursue. That would make it into part of your eighty percent time, or opening an account on iTunes, for example. Definitely, because that's part of the the path to world domination. And uh, the 20% time is generally just interesting. It's usually just a fun stuff, really. You just kind of go explore a new thing. 
and it might be something like I pass you a link to some other um, royalty-free music service. And so in your 20% time, you just go goof around through that, see what it's like. Okay. Um, timer to a certain time is done. Uh, VoIP seems to be good through Discord. I mean, not, I don't think... I mean, eventually, when I move away, uh, I'll probably, we'll, we'll need a long-distance communication. So unless we can get... Discord has a new noise reduction feature, which is just... I think that's incredibly valuable. I thought it was always there for a while. It, yeah, it has been. And apparently it's been replaced. Um, I'm not up to date. Their, uh, their updates, they're too cute, so I can't stand them. I, I can't stand... Just I hate the generations of stuff that is just... These corporate monstrosities are playing pretend at being people. This relatability is just so grating. No, I, I just I automatically naturally resist um, the kind of fakeness of a lot of things. I mean, as my previous rant in our last segment kind of demonstrated. <laughs> um, so having like, I, like I don't know what other countries are like if it's a similar trend. I'm pretty sure the United States has a whole lot of this this care bear nonsense going on, but in Canada we have several companies that just decided they need to have some random animal as their mascot. It's like, grow, grow up. Like it's, it's mega corporation make spawning a new company that uses a gecko as it's, it, Oh wow. It's you have a pug as your on your logo. Like you've, why that actually drives me away from doing business with these companies. Cause they're, it's just so childish. Stop, stop treating customers like they're little children. And maybe, I mean, maybe because the way a free market is on paper supposed to work, like the theory is that it's based on market pressures. It's, it's the successes in the marketplace that, uh, that kind of cull the unsuccessful tactics away. So what you're left with the way the market is, is the result of market pressures. So the argument would be, well, all of these companies being oh so relatable must be because those are where the successes in the market are. That's, that's in theory, not necessarily in practice, because they could just be like that because their management is insane. Um, or for whatever, you know, they want... Maybe they want to drive my business away because you know, certain kinds of customers respond to that and they want those kinds of customers because those kinds of customers are easily fooled into buying certain too, uh, too expensive packages or whatever the heck. You know, like it's like Apple manufacturing a personality. So it's, oh, it's for artists. And if you want to be a real artist, you need to buy Mac. And then everything is three times more expensive than it ought to be. So they, they have this air and it can drive away people that aren't part of their market. They don't care. They can sell you $300 casters on the bottom of your computer, like little wheels so you can roll it around. I'm not even joking. 300 bucks. Hmm. 300 US dollars. So we're clear. And that's... Uh, <laughs> 
yeah so i hate that kind of stuff and no i can't stand apple um i tried it didn't like it really didn't like it okay so i do want to talk about um another it's not exactly weighty so philosophically weighty but i do think that i need to pursue my my personal it's not even exercise it's like a self-improvement program that i made just randomly it was kind of notes of what i was was experiencing and learning way back when these are notes from i mean it has been a constant pursuit in my life to reach for it's not you can't call it self-improvement when you're young because you don't understand what that is but it's like this is cool i mean i really wish i had that superpower kind of thing and you maybe reach out to books that that people that you respect have written like and they they're like advice books and it's kind of a thing where maybe you won't understand until you're a parent or maybe you won't understand unless you're a certain kind of person or maybe maybe i don't know but there's a certain kind of thing where a, a person will get to a a certain point in their life and they will want to teach sometimes it's because they have the expertise and kind of the world does need it but sometimes it's just a thing and so when i was when i was young i had always you know you see the results that a person can accomplish something or other and you and that person wants to wants to kind of create a ripple out into the world of their their ideas or maybe a path that they took maybe it's like an autobiography but maybe they want to be functional with it and make it a, a path that a person that another person can take like they want to help another person do their own thing maybe what they want to do is they want to talk to the rest of the world and have nobody else make the same kind of mistakes that they did that's not really a thing but it's a it's a beautiful dream it's one of the many beautiful dreams that that people have and i think that's automatic when a person's like i can't say it's automatic when a person's a parent okay because there's there's a lot of bad parents um but i think it's um the most successful uh, parenting style is one that where the parent just is informed like of all the stuff in their life that was done wrong from their perspective as a child and modified by their life experiences as an adult and all this kind of stuff but they they want better for their children than they had for themselves and there's a version of that for people that don't have kids and so it's kind of like mentoring strangers and sometimes it's a message in a bottle from from a person's life um and it gives some people meaning to convey this kind of stuff and i think we just hit another blip maybe i'm doing it right now yep oh a lot of notes in. okay because we're not paying discord enough i suppose which which is zero dollars which is not enough okay now that i can't remember what i was talking about again hmm i'll figure something out to us. okay so 
So I had been exploring and reading and listening. Well, back then, listening and watching weren't really things, unless you unless you went for documentaries and stuff like that. Because a lot of the internet-y stuff didn't exist in any way, shape, or form. It was texts, like blogs, and that's that. If you're the kind of person that can read blogs, then good for you. But back then, I mean, I didn't do a lot of that. Nowadays, we have podcasts like this one and we've got videos and we've got user created documentaries i mean youtube used to have a 10 minute length that was just the hard limit and a lot of people could accomplish some great things in that period of time nowadays you could do a lot longer you can't have long lectures and people are really yearning for that stuff but back then you got what you could get and a lot of it was in book form and there's only a certain kind of person who can think their thoughts and are good at writing their thoughts and et cetera, et cetera, as I said earlier. And so I had a lot of books and I read a lot of books. And at some point when the internet was fairly new and the idea of communicating a lot of, a lot of, of anything to anyone when communication was kind of new, this is before social media really started taking off well before. I started taking notes on, on everything that I was looking at, everything I was checking out. And so I have all that stuff and it's still there and it's still good. I mean, we don't technically improve over time necessarily. We tend to though. I mean, it's, we're not surprised if you look, if you look back at your life, you wouldn't be surprised to find that you've changed not for all things and it's not necessarily much improvement but you wouldn't be surprised if you saw a lot of improvement and i look back at this stuff and I certainly i've got a fair amount of improvement but for a lot of what's there it's it's still really good and it's written down so it's kind of like a message in a bottle from my past self to my current self or to anyone because it was written for anyone it just happens to be from the perspective of a person that I used to be. So it's it's really expertly crafted towards me, as it turns out. So th there's a lot of stuff in there that isn't just like how to work out. And there's like instructions on how to work out and stuff like that. Um, and I do need that stuff because I've gotten older and I've I've atrophied in all kinds of ways. And, and it's it's not a health problem per se, but if I had been continuing some of my earlier practices i wouldn't have hurt my back for example like all it, it's for some reason a lot of men have there's just going to be that moment when the back's no good and i would have avoided that at least for a few more decades um had i had i followed these practices so there's there's stuff in there that may well be important for me for the future um there's a mental version of stuff so hopefully I won't, it's not, I won't go senile when I get really old. It's a thing. Learning. So uh, if you suck at going to a public place to publicly suck at something is not a very, it's a demoralizing thing for a lot of people. But again, there's multiple kinds of people. So it might be a motivator for some people and, but it might be a demotivator. You may want to, to start from nothing and get okay in private so that when you do go somewhere more public you're kind of showing off which 
I don't understand, uh, but I could see that there would be a certain kinds of person who would find that to be a motivator, to be public about um, getting good at something. And I know that there's certain kinds of narcissistic folk that will already be expert and they want to show off in public. You know, it's the guys that have their shirt off when they're walking down the street in summertime, right? It's it's that sort. It's like they don't need to do that. They're showing off, right? So go go look for the extra buff short guys. That's why they're doing it. They're looking for attention. And um, but the other reason that some people go to a gym, even though they're expert, isn't for arrogance. It's because those spaces are they contain the the quality the intensity of like the intensity of equipment for example to to actually for them to rise past where they are or rise to where they are so you won't find a whole lot of of heavy duty bodybuilders for example doing stuff at home unless they can craft themselves a really good home gym, which, which may be expensive or may take a lot of space. But if they go to a gym, they, then all then the high-end equipment would be enough to, to sustain them, to give them a workout. Um, so there, there are non-arrogant reasons for a person to go into public to, to learn stuff. And I'm not sure why I went off onto that, that little rant. But something I want to... So I have talked about before the notion of, of videoing. I mean, I may as well be myself try like going down this path, trying this stuff, maybe specifically talking about these things. Right now, this is audio form, so it's not appropriate for some things, but maybe that limitation is exactly um, valuable for con conveying some of these ideas. And I don't necessarily need to show... Like there are problems of good form when performing certain physical activities. And I can show that stuff and it may be a lot easier, at least for certain kinds of people to see it. I'm not going to do that not with this show. I might do it privately. I'm, I should say I might do it with my own YouTube channel, for example. I've got my own YouTube channel. Um, but for now, I think I can convey a lot of stuff through speaking. And again, with the practice for speaking. So I want to talk about sleep first off, because that was one of the first things that I had been exploring. And part of it was because I was a natural lucid dreamer back in when I didn't even know what that was. And I started asking uh, back in the days of bulletin board systems. So this is dial-up dial -up computer stuff. This is not, this is pre-internet. Um, and a BBS we connect to, and sometimes it would be a specialized place, and they could communicate to one another. So I could dial up to one place, and it might I could it might have the ability to to pass messages long distance. So there were large networks of of conversations and stuff like that. My first talking about lucid dreaming was, I think, with any significant feedback, was with a bunch of fields of expertise because it's part of the religion or anything like that just because some of the individuals were already spiritually experimenting and they had bumped into stuff so i learned so 
so sleep and dreaming were important aspects of my early exploration of it's called just generically self-improvement. So I want to talk about sleep first off, because I think mastering one's own sleep is probably a, a good entry point into physicality. And a lot of people will say, well, you need to get your diet right. That's that that's the thing that that's the building block of blah 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 blah. But somewhere before getting in shape is morale of some sort. I think this is the biggest problem that people have. It's not just do it. It's not motivation. It's not it's it's not technique. It's not it's not food. It's it's somewhere in the mind. It's somewhere in there. And so I know sleep is is right up there. So first is again I'm I'm not nocturnal. I'm both nocturnal and diurnal. So so diurnal. Uh, so I mean we use these words wrong. So I'll use the old words. I use the other words. So there's night owls. So people that will naturally stay up. And I think all humans are kind of like that. But there's diurnal. So we're all diurnal. Okay, so there's there's night owl, which is extending your bedtime. So it's pushing through your bedtime. And a lot of people will naturally do that. And I think that's why a lot of adults get less sleep than they ought to. I'll get back to that. And there's um, a morning lark, which is a person who I'd like to say would naturally get up early, but that's not, that is some people, some really highly effective people. And, but there are some people who would benefit if they were to do that, if they were to try that. And I don't want to talk about the natural, your natural cycle or anything like that yet. I don't need to go down that path of self-discovery because I know exactly where I fall, which is being biphasic, which is both night owl and morning lark, which makes life really complicated uh, unless you own your own business. Uh, and you can like sleep during the day in the middle of the afternoon if you can have a siesta. Um, so I, a lot of people, when they think about sleep, about getting good sleep, um, they there's a lot of stuff that isn't considered. And the first thing I want to think about is the sleeping and the fight that some people have, because what happens for most people is they have an alarm. And they and the reason you have an alarm because you have hard obligations. Employment is your hard obligation. School is your hard obligation. You you don't you can't be late. There are consequences, or you're just good for your word. You have appointments, like you must be awake and alive and out the door at a certain time. Period. Okay. So, and most people, what they'll do is they'll wrap their schedule around their obligations. And so their obligations instantly become a stress, right? So if you have an alarm that says, do this now or else, like, like make good on your word, get out of bed, get to work. That, that moment of shock, that moment of obligation is already a kind of demoralizer. And people start their day struggling against their alarm clock and being faced immediately with a kind of a wall, a kind of a hurdle that pushes them. Oh, I don't uh, read after push. Uh, know how you can 
Repeat after it pushes them. Have good sleep when egg. Did you say something? Repeat after. If you can remember, repeat after pushes them. Uh, okay, that's an incomplete thought. Okay. Um, well, okay, whatever. I'm going to restart slash continue. So part of the morning lark perspective is um, if you are able to sleep and wake up without the hard obligations, so you're not shocked awake and you're not stressed, you're not worried immediately, you're able to actually take some of the experience of sleeping with you with your waking life. And although your obligations are still there, nothing's changed. You've just gotten up earlier. You're, you're able to pull more of that rested state into your life, into your waking life. And you can ease into kind of with that boosted morale, with that additional relaxation, you can then move into your obligations that way with more of you rather than being unnerved and shocked, stressed and pushed immediately. Now, this is so bad for some people because you're, you're snapped out of your sleep by an alarm. You're immediately reminded of your obligations and you may hit the snooze. You're immediately struggling against all of that, against being awake, against living your life, against your obligations. You're immediately struggling like, oh, I want to win. Right? And this is a very, very big problem that I think is a kind of poison for a person's waking life. It isn't just bad sleep, which is a different problem. It's how a person wakes up and what a person wakes up with. Now, it is a beautiful dream to uh, not be woken up by an alarm clock. And that's something I want more and more people to pursue. And maybe that means that you are going to have 10 hours of sleep, right? Until your body figures it out, <laughs> until you actually catch up. And then you will find your amount of sleep. So instead of having a, a, a morning alarm shock you with your obligation, instead, have a bedtime. Your fighting shouldn't be waking up. Your fighting should be going to sleep. Your fighting should be to have a, a definite point in time where you know that you are going to go into sleep. And what happens naturally before those times, maybe with additional alarms, but they're not particularly brutal obligations. They're kind of personal obligations. They're little bits of self-improvement, multiple little bits of self-improvement that say, well, I need to have dinner and I can't have dinner too, too late because that's going to, um, you shouldn't eat too close to bedtime. I, I mean, a kind of you're not going to digest particularly well. You're not going to maybe sleep very well, take, take you longer to fall asleep. Some people are really sensitive to this. Pay attention to yourself. You can plan ahead. I mean, this is something you're, you're going to be doing every day for forever is have a decent dinner, right? And maybe your, your decent dinner should happen. Uh, if you're, if you actually become a morning lark, your decent dinner is going to happen probably almost as soon as you get home from work. Um, so if you're like a nine to five and you get home at six, maybe your dinner is at seven and maybe you go to bed at nine. If, if you're, 
if you don't have other things to do in life, if all you're doing is waking up, working, going to sleep, if you do this, you will find, and you learn that you're a morning lark, you will find the extra hour or two in the morning is a mystical experience. And you're really not going to miss out on anything from the hour or two that you technically shave off of your evening. Because your hour or two shaved off of your evening is an hour or two that's been tainted by your day, by your stresses, etc. Right. Whereas if you get that and you get that first thing in the morning, you have the advantage of the entirety of your sleep wiping your slate clean. And you get to set your your morning up and you you do, you know, maybe you you have hobbies and stuff that are that are alone time. So like I'm working on a book, for example. If I wake up early and I work on the book a little bit before I have work obligations, before I have appointments, whatever, um, I would I would be better at it because I'd have the entirety of the relaxation of my, you know, admittedly five or six hours of sleep. Right? You do you. Right? Um, so I think a person the the challenge of having good sleep would begin uh, more effectively at setting a solid bedtime not and having a dinner at a certain time and probably think the next thing would be if you want to get your stuff together shower twice a day and figure out when that's going to happen but just shower twice a day probably showering maybe first thing in the morning uh, maybe when you get around to it maybe after breakfast um, but but doing that and then in the evening as part of your ritual for relaxing and i think I find that, well, obviously being clean is uh, really, really good. There's a kind of feeling that's there. Sorry about that. That was, that was somebody I shoot away from the door. Okay, so I was talking about struggling against waking up. And uh, so I would shift that to struggling into going to bed, having a solid dinner time, uh, having... And then having a shower, having two showers. And some people meditate in the shower. It's really common. So the first point to make is stop having hot showers. You're damaging your skin. I mean, I know it might feel good. It might feel good to have steam, however you work. Please stop, stop. Um, if you have to have a hot shower, make sure it never touches your head. Make sure it never touches your forehead. Right? Ladies, pay attention. Stop putting burning hot water on your face. You are going to get old. You are, if you put it on your forehead, going to damage your skin. That's why you get weird foreheads. And yeah, I know you've got access to makeup, but this is exactly why you need that makeup. If you feel you need that makeup because you have skin tone changes across your face, just please stop. In the exact same way that some people will find themselves to be, to be morning larks or night owls, there are going to be people who will respond to having cool showers. And it's not necessarily a summertime thing, although certainly start pursuing that in the summertime. Um, there are going to be people who respond so highly well to that, that the, the body temperature change is really pleasant. Um, I, I do think people should, should have cooler showers. and You're just wasting less however you heat your water, right? less gas, less electricity, less firewood, whatever. And um, have a, having a shower twice a day is a reset for a lot of people. 
just like meditating in the shower is. Uh, you have a shower when you when you wake up as a as a way of declaring that you are awake, right? Um, so you might not want to do that immediately. So you might if you if you learn that you're a morning lark, you might want to ease into your morning, wander around, have your cup of coffee, you know, just be 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 living quietly, listening to the birds in your slippers, this kind of stuff. And decide to have a shower when you're done um, meditating on that mood. Then you have your shower. Um, then you you know you do your your morning prep to before you go to work. And the same kind of thing can happen when you get home from work. Maybe you go ho get home from work immediately. You throw yourself into a shower. Honestly, if this if this means that you have more laundry to do make the sacrifice do try this if it means that you i mean i see it as an opportunity to take your evening wandering around in a bathrobe they're expensive actually so i don't know that i would recommend it but there are some really nice bathrobes that i mean like 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 old timey bathrobes like and if you were to ritualize this and you do have the money for this you, and you want to spend it in a way that's effective. It's not like a bathrobe is going to wear out anytime soon. And so if you've got the money to spend hundreds of dollars on like an awesome whatever the heck bathrobe, and that was the thing that motivated you, because it's expensive, you want to use it. If that's the thing that motivates you into having that evening shower, if that evening shower is going to going to be a border between the pains of your obligations of your employment and your other obligations. <laughs> like if you're a parent coming home, uh, you still kind of want to do have that, that shower. you want to have that, that border between one kind of obligation and another kind of obligation. And a shower is a great way of, of making that real, making that more real because it's a very physical and it's often a meditative thing. And even if it's just five minutes, even if you only have a serious shower once a day and the other part of the day is just like getting wet, that good enough, good enough. So those are the two things that I would recommend in terms of beginning a person, beginning to go down a path of, we'll call it, uh, you don't have to think of it like self-improvement, but a lot of that has to be cooked in there. But what it is, is it's a path down uh, down uh, that would lead to physicality. And I just call it physicality. You can call it fitness because it always starts with a kind of preparedness. It's, it's like emptying the bowl before you fill it with, with the skill to become physically fit. So you, you work on your morale and your perspective, your motivation, all, all that happens first. You don't, there are a lot of people who they will crash through diets like the uh, the Kool-Aid man crashing through walls. And each one might be effective in its own way for however long. But the fundamental underpinnings of a person's health begin, well, I mean, depending on what kind of person you are, it, it technically begins at a spiritual level. But if it's a mental thing for you, if it's a if it's an intellectual exercise for you to understand, and that's how 
you get motivation, understanding this stuff, it still needs to start with you um, getting your getting your sleep in order, getting your cycles in order, and with uh, especially if you have motivation issues, hygiene is probably the single most important and easiest thing that you can just do. Just if you have to set alarms, I really don't like alarms, but if you have to constantly remind yourself to go and have a shower, do that. That's that's a massive mood improvement. And it's a practice that I've done. I would prefer to have dousing, which is you take a bucket of cold water, you wander out there in uh, swimming trunks, um, or I mean, what? I don't know what the equivalent is for a woman. Can you wear like swim trunks and a top and like a bikini top or a swim Just wear top tank top at that point? Well. You, there's the wet t-shirt problem so if you can if there is some comfortable way rather than the bikini thing because that actually requires weird arrangement to because of boobs um but if if there's some really simple equivalent that a woman can pursue then it's the same thing um i don't know what throwing a bucket of cold water does to boobs but like figure it out right uh, figure it out. So that's the stuff that I used to do is even in wintertime, go and throw a bucket of water over my head. That would, <laughs> I do not recommend that for very many people. Hello, random troll in chat. <laughs> um, Wait, I don't like recommend that for very many people, um, especially if you've got a heart condition, talk to your doctor, this kind of stuff. Wait, you would um, throw, like you would just go outside and just... in, the, in the snow in swim trunks. Yeah. In the snow and cold temperatures, throw a cold bucket of water on you. Yeah, minus 10. Yep. You want to know what happens when you do that? I steam. My body temperature goes, does not get cold. I actually get hot. Yes, because it's making itself warm before. <sighs> okay. What the body does is the, the closest I could figure, I don't think anybody's figured this out yet. The closest effect a human has is something called the mammalian diving reflex, which is if if you dive into cold water and hits your it hits your face, specifically your face, your body will flush hot as a response to your body, your face getting shocked with cold. It's just a weird effect, and uh, this was part of a semi spiritual practice that I had been exploring at one point. I'm not doing it anymore because it's a little inconvenient and it's, I'm, I'm quite embarrassed. It's not that I'm totally out of shape or anything like that, but it's kind of embarrassing to be walking out at like, and again, it's like, cause I'm a morning lark. I would go out at three in the morning <laughs> and I would do this. So technically nobody's awake, but it's still kind of public. I lived in other circumstances in the past where, where there's nobody out there. So I'd walk in my backyard or whatever the heck and do this. And it is, uh, you'd have to have the right service to walk onto. Grass is good, or what would be dirt in the wintertime. But, but pavement or um, like the, the paving stones, that kind of stuff, or brick, those are just brutal on your feet if it's in the middle of winter. So I don't recommend that. But that is a, that is a hammer to the back of the head shock. <laughs> that's very very different than meditating in a cool shower so i don't recommend that to anybody ever for any reason um 
but the 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 showering twice a day showering once a day is is generally easy enough for anybody that's got work okay if you're not doing that please do even if you're not necessarily washing your hair every day um because technically it depends on your hair right there are a lot of arguments for not washing your hair every day um i do not subscribe to any of those notions we have we have science we have good shampoo um and but but migrating from what is normal uh, of showering once a day into showering twice a day is the kind of um fairly simple it's a kind of fairly simple push for you to do something on purpose and it's easy because it's building on a skill set you already have it requires well I mean, some places actually charge for their money for for their water um, but it's it's cheap or free um, it's really really simple it really doesn't take a whole lot of time to strip get wet okay you got extra laundry to do because of the extra towel or whatever the heck however you work um, but it's you already know how to do all that you just have to choose to do it twice so it's simple enough and there is an immediate reward and i could explain it to you in words i could talk about the meditation i could talk about the separation of of your day from before your shower to after your shower you do reset into a kind of a different person um that alone is like the drug free method of of nudging against depression let's say and there's some there's a kind of self-diagnosed fuzz a funk that a lot of people get into and this is especially true with things like if you're stuck at if you're stuck at home because you're working from home or because you're locked down or what have you and there's a lot of this going around just two showers a day just start with that if that's all you start with start with that and then work on your bedtime sleep work on your and i can talk about the rest so i'm going to very gently maybe once once a week or so either repeat the same thing because i'm still working on it or gently migrate into the next stuff and i'll do that um because i've got my notes in front of me and they're actually really surprisingly thorough and maybe as i'm going through things other people can i mean even if you're listening to this from the future um, you can pursue this although i have already been pursuing this so this might help you so hopefully and minion i know you've got you're awful so you can try this um, maybe it will help you be less off less awful so i do have to note um is there a way for you to not have the awful crackly pop when you come and speak what's happening when you come back from break uh that pop it's probably me unmuting and muting physically the microphone so if that yeah. turns out to be an issue, then I'm going to just mute. You could set up a push to mute hotkey. And so what I do to avoid that sound, what I started doing is I have a push to mute, which obviously doesn't entirely work out, but I have a push to mute for Discord itself, global hotkey. I do that, and then I reach for my microphone's physical mute. Since I can't hold down the push to mute when I leave, for example. Um, 
So you could pursue something like that. Maybe that would help. I, I end up, I mean, that would just be one of the solutions because the live experience would kind of suck because of that. Um, even if it's a, just a moment for the, um, the upload, for the upload version of this, I do clean out those pops. So technically it's not a big deal, but you can note it and explore that later. Okay, at any rate, we're back. Um, one of the the problems of momentum with a show that's got three segments like this is the it's running out of stuff to talk about. So I, I figure a decent segment can be me talking about that, broadly speaking, self-improvement, but the physicality stuff. And I don't mind talking business and philosophy and stuff like that, I'm trying to convey whatever stuff I happen to have. Um, I will theoretically uh, eventually run out of that until we get audience that asks questions. So one of the, the concerns might be if you want to think of the segments in certain ways. So there would be a consistent segment that's talking about certain stuff. I mean, that could be really valuable if we had our stuff together. So at one point you were talking about some sort of audience participation thing that you had heard about with another podcast where random weird stuff is suggested by the audience. But I don't mind um I don't mind doing that kind of thing as long as you have vetted the the What's stuff up? that Okay. Sorry? I don't think I mentioned it, but did you just hear the squeak or the weird mic sound? Not just now, no. Okay. Wait, I don't... You have... Hmm? No, I was thinking about the thing and it doesn't exist, never mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Captain explanation. <laughs> that's a that's a great way of getting yourself just ignored when you talk. <laughs> if you're so inarticulate, well, people are like, well I don't think weird. I mentioned audience and participation something, but that's might not have been on stream, but I wrote it down. It was just some other podcast you had been listening to, I believe. There's only two. There's only two to three. Um, maybe it's something that you're not right. Maybe it's something you were familiar with that you mentioned, because we had al always been facing the problem of running out of stuff to talk about, which I think is the problem of everybody in every conversation ever is sooner or later you're done, which is the thing you never want to have happen if you're chatting up a girl. Just have that awkward silence. I've had that a few times, I gotta say. And it's not like the stage fright equivalent. Of, of, it's not chatting up a girl. So it's, it's, a, it's a girl that I know who's a girl, right? I'm attracted to her, so it's a girl. And uh, we're, we're chatting and walking or something like that, and we just kind of run out. <laughs> it's like, and, and there's a little bit of like, I, I I like it because it's just quiet time being with a girl <laughs> that I'm attracted to. So it's like, it it's all good. Yet, it is still something that you don't want to, um, you don't want to blither on. Like small, oh man, small talk bothers me. It's so disingenuous. And so I, I like, I like having the ability of having something to talk about. Without I need to work on my pregnant pauses, that's for sure. But um, yeah, having stuff to talk about, I am running out of stuff to write about, to 
notes of stuff to talk about up front. Um, other than talking about my day, which is like the most weird narcissistic thing. I want to talk about gardening. But I haven't gone anywhere with that. I planted my onions. I have a note that says I could talk about my onions. It's like, it's not really a big life life uh, improvement to have. It's not like, uh, it's it's not like becoming a parent. <laughs> it's it's just onions, man. <laughs> not really a big deal. But uh, and even then, I think I messed it up. <laughs> what you gonna do? I decided to separate all my onions and plant them. So yes, I'm gonna go on a rant on onions right now. <laughs> but we do need to have some way of of knowing, of of unlimited feedback of stuff to talk about that isn't uh political because i'm i'm sick of of i'm sick of politics i'm sick of dumb news stuff and i'm and i think there's going to be far too many other people who i mean okay guys so we're canadian and uh canada is very different politically than a lot of other places um and we're really brutally infected by american politics just because uh, we've got very significant trade relations and and all this kind of stuff, um, and so pe people would approach us with all kinds of news and stuff like that. But it's like, yeah, but that's America. I I don't care. I mean, I care, right? Like a like <laughs> like is everything okay down there? <laughs> See, guys. I mean, who? Canada does actually have a history of taking refugees from the United States. I don't know if anybody knew that. <laughs> There's actually uh, two classes of refugees, of like actual refugees. We didn't really use those words back then. That language didn't exist. But on two major occasions, we have two classes of Americans who would come up here. And the first was, um, was we had underground railroads rescuing, uh, rescuing blacks from the United States. Uh, so freed slaves, um, and, and probably the occasional already free slave, right? So, I guess uh, is there two separate? So, so free man is a okay. Anyhow, so escapees and and already free blacks would come to Canada, and there were some literal smuggling routes and stuff like that. Some cool stories, and. Uh, so they would find their freedom here and the other was uh, during the vietnam war people uh dodging the draft would come to canada so we actually do have a history and it was really funny because there is election after election you have americans who say like oh if if the wrong if, <laughs> if the wrong team gets elected i'm moving to canada it's like okay we're here for you guys just you, you're gonna make good on that one of these days no you're just gonna stay there and complain aren't you yeah, okay. I thought so. And if you it the, we're we're kind of in a situation where where you could actually use words like refugee and come up here. But unfortunately our government is a little bit uh, fishy about about that stuff. So I don't want to get get political about that. Um but cuz we we just get too much americanness and it's just tiring. It's not that it, it's not that we don't care, guys, but you know there are a lot of other people that do care, including some Canadians. And uh, Canadians talking about Canadian politics is probably the the strangest thing. There are there are Americans that have no idea how Canada works at all, 
and uh, most Canadians don't either. Uh, and I think it would be a really hilarious endeavor to try to be like, well, okay, well, for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to try to explain how Canadian politics works. <laughs> and and there will be absolutely baffled, fascinated Americans, I'm sure. But, uh, but no, Cause, probably because I'd have to learn. I'm one of the Canadians that barely understands what the it 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 just like we don't have we don't have like sense of but yeah yeah at least the united states is built on like this weird constitution stuff canada is a little wacky you know we've got a lot of those words <laughs> things don't work quite the same um and i think it would be depressing for me to learn enough of that stuff well enough to also teach also talk about so no i don't want to go there um well, I want to talk about onions. <laughs> talk about onions for fifty minutes. Um, so, so I bought these onions, and they were like Walmart onions. So they're really, really cheap, and you just get a little bunch for like however much in Canada. It's like a dollar or something. It's really cheap, um, and you can use them all. You can cut them all the way down, so you have uh, as much of a nub of white as possible. What I did is, is He's I bought about green onions. I'm t- yeah, I'm talking about some people call them scallions, but green onions. And so, but this time, what I did is I just took the entirety of I I don't know because I only found one degraded elastic, but I think it was two, maybe even three bunches, and uh, I just stuck them in a cup and put them outside. And normally, what you would do is you'd stick them in a cup and keep them inside, maybe near a window, give them some light. And I did, but I put them outside and just, I didn't, they would dry out until it was just like dry roots. And uh, I, I would be like, oops, and I would go add water. And I did this a bunch of times. Um, and today I decided to just plant them. And first thing is the, because the elastic is like terrible, cheap elastic that was holding them together. It degraded because it had gotten wet and dried and wet and dried. And it was the most inexpensive kind of elastic that Walmart could come up with. And the roots had been subject to, I don't know. So they were kind of slimy and they had grown very well, but they grew into a lump because I put all these onions all in the same cup for so long that they, they matured. So kind of gently had to nudge them apart and gently kind of plant them. I don't know what I'm doing for any of that. Technically speaking, you're not supposed to I mean, I suppose I'm not supposed to let the roots grow this long when I plant them. Uh, otherwise, when you're you're planting them, the roots kind of, uh, they don't go. So like, imagine digging a hole and sticking a plant full of roots down. As you push the plant in, the roots will kind of splay out, which and, and maybe even creep back up again as you're putting it down and trying to, and it's not exactly what you want to do. And I tried to avoid that, but it didn't really work. So I've got another pot of onions out there. It's probably more crowded than it should be, but I don't know what I'm doing. And it doesn't matter. It's it's like three bucks worth of onions and some soil and store-bought soil, which is also really, really cheap. Um, it was quite inexpensive for a very uh, awkward-to-carry bag. And I've got plenty left over. So that was really nice. Um, and I'm sure there are different kinds of soils that uh, maybe got the right kind. I don't know what I'm doing. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Right, I want to tell myself it doesn't matter, but I feel bad every time a plant dies, <laughs> and a lot of plants have died around me. Um, and I, I have, uh, 
I got some, I mean, it is kind of a sin, but I've gotten some, and I've gotten some bad remarks with this idea, but you know, plants are so cheap that you could have like a plant of the week delivery service. <laughs> so if you have a black thumb like me, you, you'll just get a new plant and you'll try again. <laughs> Maybe get some instructions that say only water it on these days this much. Maybe you get a special little cup or something. It's like, this is this is the exact amount of water you should be giving this plant at this time. Like put a little digital alarm clock on the side of a of a mug. <laughs> That's what you feel like to make it so easy. It's like what would the equivalent be? Like a TV dinner equivalent just for houseplants? Just to make it that easy. Um and I actually brought this up to some other people. They're like, you're it was because it's so wasteful to be just the idea of delivering this stuff all the time is just such a wasteful concept. But honestly, it's like, yeah, well, is it like we're that's when, you know, things are getting a little, little weird. Cause when you're so like entitled, so privileged, so rich that you can actually just like that you can even have houseplants in the first place as a start, but you can also just replace them. Just yeah, whatever. I mean, it's not like buying a car every three years just because, eh, whatever. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't like that old model. It's not like buying a million shoes that you're not going to uh, wear. It's, I mean, it's nothing like that, but it's kind of, you know, suspiciously nudged in the direction of wastefulness to actually have, um, to cycle through terrible houseplants just because you are an awful, like, maybe I just need good instructions. But good luck finding good instructions when you've got a world full of bad ideas out there. Good luck searching for stuff. And just hoping. And again, with the trust thing, like you're going to reach out to the internet. First, you're going to trust your search engine to give you decent results. And they're going to trust random blogs. What? Just because the search engine said they're okay. And, and then, then what? How much of a lack of knowledge do you have about your your climate zone and all this kind of stuff. What what soil types do you have? Blah, blah. There's just too much to learn. At any rate, the gardening thing, it has not even started yet. It's still kind of tentatively this this onion experiment. I have the I have a pot suitable for potatoes. I should probably drill drainage holes in it. But what I want because potatoes are quite a bit different than onions. Onions Onions, I can, I guess, trust, even if they they come from suspicious sources. Uh, but potatoes, what potatoes I'm going to insist on, organic potatoes. Because the potatoes will actually propagate out, and I actually want the, the species of potato to be pretty specific. Um, and but I, So there's much more to learn with something like that. Um, so, I, so I haven't quite... Like, I'll go poke around, then I'll save bookmarks of stuff. And I may or may not watch the videos that I bump into. So there's a lot of stuff that might be in my head. And when I get around to it, I actually have quite a lot of material to draw on ahead of time. Kind of like, imagine for anything that you're particularly interested in, you have an archive, a resource that's already been half curated by you. So it's like, a chunk of effort done by past you for anything that you're particularly interested in. So that when you get around to doing something, you've already been kind of bootstrapped up 
into um into a project into this kind of project and it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to actually have um when you go exploring and when you actually half commit to wanting to do something to already have thought about it a little bit because i'm a daydreamer right um and to have already done enough research that you've got some blog posts or some videos or some whatever the heck the trick becomes maintaining that backlog of bookmarks and possibly wandering through your own archives of notes in order to to be reminded of, of the fact that you were interested in in certain things so i've got some bookmarks that are literally from like the like from not the late 90s anymore but the early 2000s like really old bookmarks and some of the websites are gone and stuff like that but it's like hey check out this piece of software or hey check out this or hey we should we should learn to 3d edit and it's like wow has the technology changed since then um so if i ever haven't in, in my head like there's this oh, i can never remember Oh, I want to look this up right now. I can never remember what it's called, but there's this the coolest there's the coolest style for gardening. It's for like working gardens. So it's it, it's if you want to so a working garden is like stuff that will produce food. And so think potatoes and onions and the classics, right? But it's also there's some common stuff like like turnips or radishes. And some of these you grow simultaneously kind of overlapped and some of them will be will produce viable um viable yields what would the term be like crops at different times during the year and so you kind of wanna and some of them influence the magic of the soil and stuff like that but there's this one uh style of gardening if you can call it that and i'm I'm going to try pronouncing it. My German is pretty bad, even though I tried to learn a little bit of it. It's like Hugen culture. Sorry, that was Dutch. Close, close enough. I'm going to post this in chat. Oh, well, in case there's anybody still here. Um, so it's a horticultural technique. So if I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, I'm going to spell it. It's H U G. E L K U L T U R. So English pronunciation will, will be Hugue L culture. Okay. And what it is, is it's a noun. It's uh, not, so you wouldn't take, say, your yard and just put a mound of dirt there. You'd actually prep it beforehand. So you start by digging and digging uh, either a trough, like a long ditch, or a hole. And you prepare in layers specific materials building out from a core of like old wood and then you would actually layer very specific classes of material that are all valuable in their own way and they're not necessarily because what how a person would think of soil is they think of think of like certain nutrients and stuff in soil so you might think the layers are going to contribute the nutritional quality right for soil 
but that's not really what's happening. What's happening, that's clearly part of it, but uh, it's for things like aeration. So you have the, the wood core, the, the wood branches or whatever the heck core, and then you have leaves on top and some soil. And so you're actually creating certain layers of biome for either water to penetrate or air to penetrate or for you know bacteria or etc so it's it's this and it's not particularly complicated at all i've seen a youtube video and it it had a guy doing it like there on camera and it took it took time like he didn't film it all live because he actually had to dig the hole and stuff like that but he showed it and it was he did it in an afternoon and a, a lot of these gardening projects because this isn't exactly gardening gardening this is kind of like landscaping construction gardening type stuff um it, it's quite easy it takes almost no time at all it's quite impressive when i see it and it's something that i i don't know that i would want to actually know how to do it per se or do it per se but i want to have it it's like you know like it's like knowing how to draw. <laughs> I don't want to learn how to draw. I just want to know how to draw. No practice, only good. And uh, so, so yeah, it's it's kind of a compost heap and all this kind of stuff. So it's something like a raised bed. Um, so it's directly seeded on soil and just raised up with material, and it lets you seed a bunch of stuff in it and it's just kind of like magic because it's so awesome and you uh, for some people they just don't have to water it at all ever and that's because of the way it's built is when it so assuming you've got a reasonable climate when it does rain the area soaking it soaks well enough that there's essentially a reservoir it stays quite moist between rainfall. So it would rain enough that this thing would soak and there would be enough of kind of like having, it's not like having land that's below the waterline or anything weird like that. So if you have rivers and stuff like that, you get moistened earth. It's, it's nothing like irrigation, but it is, uh, you end up having a humid reservoir in, in the core of the material that as time progresses, it will still provide moisture to the roots of all of your plants until the next rainfall comes. And some people will say that uh, they just don't have to water all summer, all, all summer, et cetera, all growing season, which is wonderful. I just don't know if this, uh, how many years this would last. So for example, the if you got woody material it will sooner or later break down that's just normal and it's breaking down so its existence and the the woody masses separation does stuff but it's going to compress over time it's going to get wet it's going to rot and those things are all important to how this the system works but sooner or later everything's going to break down and compress enough that i would think that the efficacy of this stuff would fade so the question becomes how long does one of these things uh, last probably going to be more than one year is it going to be 10 years is it right so 
And then the question becomes, if you build one of these things and you use one of these things, then how much work is it to disassemble and uh, recreate one of these? Because you've got to like cart in all the soil and stuff like that, unless you can salvage it from elsewhere in your garden. But once you have this, well, what do you do with a, an, an, a less productive version of this? Do you, do you take your mound and disassemble it and like spread it all over your lawn? Can you do that? Or is it not good as, as an addition to topsoil? Do you have to till it in? Can you, can you scrape it off, just replace the core of wood and then pile it all back on again? Like how, because sometimes when you're working on something like this, it might be great up front. It might be easy to assemble, but it might be annoying later. Like you might end up having refuse of something like this and it might be a challenge to actually get rid of it. I mean, it's, it's not a good comparison. Um, but you can imagine something like spent fuel cells for a nuclear reactor, right? It might be very, uh, very, well, very expensive and very efficient up front, but you've got this consequence at the end of it. It's easier to talk about something like solar panels because solar panels, however complicated they are, uh, they're absolutely awful once they're once they're done. They have a lifespan of some people have said something like five years of just hard use, right? Like hard continuous use um, before they, they might have problems and need to be replaced. But the replacement is, well, it's obnoxious. Now you have to have this, this half-cocked system of finding all the pieces that have broken down to whatever degree and replace them piecemeal, or do you replace entire rows or... And what do you do with all the waste? Well, is all the expertise and equipment necessary to disassemble, cart these things away, and then landfill, right? Is there recycling involved? No, no. It's not like regular glass. It's not like regular electronics. You can pull it apart and try to process it like other electronics, which is just terribly wasteful pseudo-recycling. And so the entire notion of this is, well, you just do it once in the last last for all of eternity it's not taking into account the consequences of setting it up and that's one one extremely important thing to understand if you've got an endeavor like a landscaping project and you build something like this garden mound well what happens when it has served its purpose um, what it, it's it's waste something is waste and the problem is a lot of these places will talk about it up front. They'll talk about how to build it. They'll talk about how awesome it is, right? They'll upsell it, especially places that sell, sell landscaping services. Um, and nobody ever mentions what happens later. Nobody talks about the consequences. Like maybe, like maybe this matters for bugs or maybe this matters for wildlife or maybe, right? Maybe this is an attractant to um yeah, gophers or something weird or rabbits or like does anybody talk about that stuff uh i, st I still would want to experiment with it because i've got some space i can do anything i want to pro ken is a little bit weird i'm not sure what our rules are about things like building a building a shed or something like that, like building a miniature house 
I know the United States, there's a lot of places that are absolute jerks about um, their miniature homes. <laughs> they're not actually cheap. Um, they're cheaper than nothing, but they're like miniature homes that you can actually build uh, that you can purchase unassembled and assemble them yourself or kind of stuff. And there are some places that have hard laws about what you can do where. And Canada, I, I've had the impression that Canada is a little bit nicer about this stuff. Um, but I don't, I don't know. So I could probably do all the gardening I want, do all, in, including making, it's not a very tall mound or anything like that, to do this kind of stuff. Actually, I don't know how tall this is. I think it's six feet tall, which is just crazy. Beds are usually about three feet. Three feet high. Okay, so this is about a meter high. And that's um, that's like waist level, isn't it? Something like this. Um, oh, man. You know, I actually have a tape measure on my desk. And the reason I do that, <laughs> the reason I do that, how many? So it's 36? Okay, sorry. I'm Canadian. Please don't mind me. Yeah, it's about waist for most people. I'm a little tall, so. Okay, so about waist level. That's that's <laughs> that's a lot of of material actually. But even at that, I don't think that's significant enough for it to uh, matter. Um, I did look into it. I guess while I'm on it, so I did look into it, and this is going to be the case for almost everywhere, everywhere. Um, and if you wanted to do landscaping, so this is like earth-related stuff. If you wanted to do that kind of stuff, your backyard might have a lot of relaxed rules. Always call before digging. But your front yard is going to probably have very strict rules. Always call before digging. And remember, if you've got irrigation pipes, they might do really weird things. So you're going to have to really be careful. Um, and those, your the stuff provided by your original house may not have schematics that map out where your sprinkler system is, this kind of stuff. Or if you've got like, if you've got outlets out in your yard for like your Christmas, uh, if you've got like a little Christmas setting or something like that, that you put out in the holidays, you might actually have some yards will actually have an outlet out there, like a, an, an outdoor capable outlet. Um, and there's going to be wires associated with that. None of that's going to be mapped out by your actual home schematics almost ever. So, right. So there, that's a problem. Plus there might be rules in terms of the grade that you have. So the grade is the slope and walls and height and line of sight. And who knows what else could happen there. I looked up all kinds of rules like, Hey, can I just put paving stones down and just not care about having a yard anymore? What are the rules for trees? Right. What are the rules for hedges? All this stuff could exist for you. So this kind of garden mound, I might not be able to turn my front yard into gardens like that. I, they would have to be short. You might have plant height problems and stuff like that. Um, hopefully your region doesn't call all plants of a certain height a weed, which is for us, I think it's 20 centimeters or 30 centimeters. Oh God! Sorry, Americans. Let's see. What is that like? A foot? Yeah, that's a foot. Thirty centimeters is a foot. It's 
So I think that's what, what is considered a weed for us. But I think we also have people that look and, and actually know what a weed is. We're not, uh, we're not that weird. Um, so, so we could grow regular plants and stuff like that. Like, um, cab, a cabbage would never be considered a weed <laughs> or a watermelon or whatever the heck. I would not recommend watermelons cause they actually take, they take a lot of watering. Never would have thought that. Okay. So before I forget earlier, um, I talked about showering, um, and I'm not going to beat a dead horse on that one. But I did talk about showering twice a day possibly costing money. And I'm probably going to bring this up many times. But Canada is the third rich, water richest place. And that means that we... Go back to Canada is like third something in the water. Okay, okay. So... So I was talking about showers possibly costing money because water costs money. And we don't have those kinds of consideration because water doesn't cost money. I don't think anywhere in Canada. Um, and it's not like one of these, it's a human rights. It's like just water's nothing to us. Um, and that's because we have more, more fresh water, fresh running water, as opposed to salt water, more fresh running water than most of everywhere else on earth put together in one of our provinces our most populous one ontario i believe it has more lakes than basically anywhere than any other country certainly and i think most other countries put together it's it's just ridiculous and this is not counting our arctic or our arctic which is also fresh water right so ice and snow is fresh water um uh, then we would be second because Brazil doesn't have any, any Arctic. Not yet. Um, yeah, but Russia would beat us because it's just got more land mass. Um, so we don't, when we think about things like uh, gardening and watering and showering, we just have no concept of metering anything. We don't have droughts ever anywhere. Um, so that, uh, that's got to be a really different experience of life. I know there are Americans who have, man. Okay, so I'll rant, I'll rant. Okay, so this will be my last 15 minutes. So in the United States, Florida has drought issues. I think California does too. And Florida specifically has drought issues because the government wants there to be drought issues. There's, there's legislation and stuff like that about watering lawns, as I understand. There's like, there's, um, what is not, not the reverse of a quota. There are like limits on how you do it and all. I don't fully understand what's going on there, but I do, I have heard that there, that there's lawn watering shaming going on because they have water issues. And I say it's the government's fault because what the government is doing is it's subsidizing farming for water use. And the thing about Florida is you guys actually take your water flood flood land with it grow in water inefficient crops on purpose because that stuff is subsidized and then take those water rich products like oranges and ship them out of the state you're literally shipping water out of your state no wonder you have a drought like stop doing that step two 
Why are you paving everything everywhere? Stop doing that. Because rainwater, what it does is it just hits pavement, it washes off into wherever the heck, and it, it pools it pools up and it doesn't soak into the land and help it be a lush, a lush, more uh, greatly uh, moistened space. What ends up happening is it is it washes off and it evaporates off of everywhere else and it becomes much more immediately um, vaporized and pushed into the atmosphere where it can blow away out of the out of the uh, I was going to say province out of the state. So that's what's happening is you guys, every single piece of civilization everywhere has this problem of just paving everything because you, you, uh, your government is cheap and doesn't want to maintain actual life. So we'd rather pave it over and your citizens uh, do dumb things like have lawns, which you, I don't know why people have lawns. I mean, I guess they're easier to take care of than gardens and that, that kind of treatment of soil makes it less able to soak up and keep for longer keep the rains and that is not exactly well in some places it is it is desertification and sometimes it's just it's just a farming um like tibet oh no no i think it's called north mongolia something like that in china it is now blowing sand out out into another out into southern provinces because it's being desertified because of bad farming practices like really bad farming practices because those those regions have never known traditional like what let's call them western style farming because that's the practices they're applying because it's just herding territory it's because it's, it's it's mongolia it's horses and it's goats and it's stuff like this and it's migration and it's just like scrubland kind of thing. And so so tearing it up and turning it into farmland is just is inappropriate. And there's a lot of places on earth where humans have poked at it, have tried to tame it to change it from one land use to another, or have inappropriately paved it, or have whatever the heck, and just things have gone completely mental. And people want to blame this on all kinds of other stuff, but honestly, humans do not understand land management very well. The first thing you want to do if you, is if, if you have drought problems, you might want to start planting some smallish trees. Try to, try to keep the moisture in the region. Um, anyhow, that, that was my rant, my rant from earlier from having showers. So there's the weirdest considerations for Canada, like... I will shrug and say weird things like, well, you just keep running the tap water until it's the right temperature. And we don't fully comprehend the idea of wastefulness for water, which is really strange because Canada is, like every civilization, kind of migrating towards, well, the problem for us isn't the, the volume of water that's being used. It's where the water came from and how treated it is. So although there may be a lot of fresh water around, how we're drawing it into our infrastructure, because it has to go from like lakes into pipes and it'll sit in the pipes until it's ready for you to, to pull out. So until you open your tap up and get, the water has to be in the infrastructure of the pipes all in your city. So every additional person 
and if and if people are like in suburbs that are far away the water has to be sitting in the pipe from uh, from further into the city until out into your your neighborhood and into your house and if you're all spread out all over the place you're pulling up more lake water and purifying it and then pushing it out into those pipes where they sit and actually actually talked with a politician about this for a while because that was one of the one of his concerns. I don't know if it was part of his campaign thing or whatever. I don't know where he was even running. It was just, you know, you talk, talk with a random person, this kind of stuff happened. Anyhow, um, and I was I was telling him this. One of the concerns is the larger your population base and the more dispersed it is, is the more piping you're going to have to have, the more you're going to lose water level in your lakes. And the more problems you're going to have with general atmospheric water, with general region water, because you're just settling it in in all of your your liquid infrastructure. And the other is the more people you add, it and it gets weird. Is the more water purification you have to go through. So while technically water wastefulness doesn't really matter for the third most water rich place on Earth. The fact it might not all be accessible because it's all out there wherever it is. It might just be local in kind of like lakes and rivers and stuff. But you have to get it, you have to purify it, and you have to, have to store it. And so the more people you have is the more volume of purification you have to have. Like we we can reuse a lot of our water, right? You just have to clean it up. You know, all your all your dirty toilet water can can be cleaned up. <laughs> poured out your tap right and and it's just water it's just h2o it's it's good old dihydrogen monoxide um one of the most deadly chemicals on earth so many people drown in it ah uh, even bleach has it bleach is like 97 percent dihydrogen monoxide and it's a poison i love i love that there's one girl that started started that on youtube with this this joke video about it but it's it's absolutely true, and just she just uses a, a bad version of a of a chemical name, and doesn't tell any and un and tries to keep a straight face talking about all the different ways that it's poisonous and then et cetera et cetera to and then and there's some people that are that will get the joke because it's hilarious and that will laugh about it and other people that don't fully understand that will fall for it. So Canada has a whole lot of dihydrogen monoxide. Um, anyhow, so I'm I'm out of steam, and I think we're probably going to call it even.